Welcome to Defragmenting, a podcast of Cairn University, promoting biblical integrity and thoughtful Christianity. Our world is becoming increasingly polarized, and we're prone to division before unity in any number of arenas. Technology fractures our sense of embodiment, and the current culture wars see Christians parting ways over theology, politics, history, race, and social justice. And this division isn't only external. Rather, there's an ongoing pressure to disassociate the mind from the body, divorcing how we think from how we live. And even within the church, the tendency to know and understand the Bible as separate stories and rules of living rather than a cohesive narrative of God's redemptive plan leaves many believers knowing the what of their faith without the why. In this episode, Dr. Keith Plummer and Ben Best discuss the name defragmenting, the purpose behind the podcast and the conversations and interviews that excite them, and the unique and timely intersection of biblical integrity and thoughtful Christianity. Join in the conversation now. I'm joined today in the studio by Dr. Keith Plummer, a fellow co-host of Defragmenting. And our hope today is to talk about sort of the impetus behind the name, the thoughts behind the brand of the podcast, and even simply why defragmenting. So Keith, welcome to the studio. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thank you. I was thinking, though both of our voices are on all of most of the episodes, this is the first time that we're actually doing it together. So I'm glad that we can do this. Yeah, me as well. I'm looking forward to the time. So if you would, um, could you describe to our audience a little bit of the behind the scenes for some of our dialogues leading up to uh, the rebranding of the podcast, uh, new episodes, new direction, and sort of uh, what we're hoping to accomplish? Sure. Well, in our conversations, we were talking about uh, the recurrence of the description of fragmentation as um, something that many people were using to describe contemporary life. And as you and I were talking, we were discussing how it is that from a biblical point of view, God originally created everything with an integrity, a harmony, and that with the entrance of sin into the human experience, there was a disruption, uh, a fragmentation, a separation of sorts that occurred in a variety of directions. And one of the things that we had discussed were the four separations that Francis Schaeffer uh, appealed to concerning what sin created. And he talked about the separation of man from God, the separation of man from himself, a psychological fragmentation, and a separation of man from man sociologically, and a separation of man from nature and nature from nature. And so we were thinking about what redemption is about and how it is that um, with the process of sanctification in believers' lives, there is this progressive reintegrating, a, a defragmenting, uh, working against this kind of um, schism that sin brought into the human experience. And we were also talking about how it is that just the pace of life that we are living at today increases that sense of fragmentation, disjointedness. And um, so 
those were some of the things that we said, you know what, when we think about what Karen is about, what it is that we hope the podcast would accomplish in line with that, we settled on the name of defragmenting because uh, that has with it the idea of working against reversing the, um, the disruption that is a part of the, the experience of humanity ever since the fall. Indeed, indeed. I, I recall us kind of working through, I mean, you can look at any modern cultural society, any ideology that's currently in vogue. We looked through areas of fragmentation, right? We think we see fragmentation politically, certainly, nearly everywhere, pretty certainly. ubiquitous. Um, there's there's fragmentation theologically or denominationally that is, has only further been increased. And I would say maybe both of our estimations, uh, largely due to uh, the integration of technology and social media and some other things that have set that uh, on course even more precipitously. There's certainly ethical fragmentation, uh, opinions on the the ethical distinctiveness of something or the the right and wrongness of certain things that have for decades, millennia, centuries been uh, considered normative are now no longer. And in fact, some things that were celebrated before are now demonized. Um, this is a regularity in our first world culture context, right? Um, we talked about even the, the fragmentation of the intellect and the emotions or the affections. Yes. That's a, a huge undertaking, this, this concept of expressive individualism um, that, that gives rise to the, the classic moniker, facts over feelings, feelings over facts, and the dichotomy there. Um, we certainly think over the past several years, especially of the racial and, and ethnic fragmentation that has existed, certainly globally. It's not simply a first world problem, but it is often exacerbated uh, by uh, first world problem. And even more so in our country, uh, given the history of race relations over the past 50 years, um, it's really come to a bit of a, a head more than anything else over the past five years or so. Even the, the concepts of gender dysphoria, a lot of the psychological phenomena that we've discussed, this idea that there's fragmentation within the body from the mind and the gender or from the body and the mind, this, this fragmentation that Nancy Piercy and many others have talked about over the years that um, really is at the core of some of the critical ideologies yeah. uh, and, and really the celebration of these things. Yeah, and on that point, on the the intrapersonal yeah. fragmentation, yeah. one of the things that you and I discussed is um, a section of Corey Brock's and Grace Atanto's book yeah. on um, neo-Calvinism, a theological introduction. And they, there's a point in there where they are describing Herman Bavinck's view of the effects of the fall. And I just wanted to share one of these quotations that we had discussed as we were thinking through some of this. Um, they say, this corruption takes the form of a division within one's internal life. As the faculties now war against one another, instead of working together in harmony, sin is an atomizing force. It detaches the faculties from one another. And that idea of this internal fragmenting, yeah. that what was designed by God to be working in concert is now 
marked by much division. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have, even in the Psalms, David uh, praying, give me an undivided heart that I might fear you. This, this phenomenon of this internal uh, incoherence is something that in Christ, uh, God is by the Spirit progressively um, working against and reversing. Of course, it won't be uh, fully realized until we are glorified. But as we were thinking about the nature of progressive sanctification, we thought that it is appropriate to say that uh, part of that is uh, a defragmenting. Absolutely. Even as it's become popular today, I don't want to go so far as to say class warfare, but even even the socioeconomic fragmentation that we've seen, this this reality where, especially leading up to the global pandemic, you had a, a, a um, an attack on wealth in general, that there was this disgust with wealth, much like many of the, the sort of revolutions that have led to the deposing of kings and such in the past. There was a worry from those with wealth that there was... Um, simultaneously with this, I thought it was quite ironic, with the rise of crypto and the rise of all these newly minted millionaires making millions of dollars on ethereal digital currency things um, that maybe two years prior were, were decrying the, the standards of wealth and, and uh, the leveling of the classes and the issues in our country, even of the you know the the one percenters holding all the power and and that 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 structure needs to be dismantled but even even simply something as um interesting as the power structures that exist and and this goal to tear down the power structure certainly in our country has been a a largely liberal ideology uh, that is that is bent in many ways on even a socioeconomic agenda um, you have the same thing in intergenerational fragmentation, as it always has in some ways. There's a uh, reality where the older generation, those who have come before, you get the comment, right? Like, all right, boomer, um, that and and such. Uh, and now, you know, the millennials and, and and even now Gen Z is is being blamed for all the ills of society by one generation. And, and now all the rest of us moving after are looking back and blaming everybody else, or it seems to be the case. Yeah. And all of that, again, is propelled by the vitriol that you see online and this lack of uh, logical and cohesive thought, this slower methodology that's much more instead in our time now reactionary and not marked by calm and rational thought, but by sort of um, the the ideas of triggered or uh, even the language that we're using. There's fragmentation everywhere. So part of, I think, just the reason that I wanted to bring this up is because when we look around at the issues facing uh, Christendom in the modern era, it is rife with fragmentation. We see it everywhere. And some of it, it's easy to see, and others is far more subtle. Yes. Can I add another example of fragmentation that we discussed? And that is... um, In the information age, where we do have the proliferation of information that we do, there is an ease with which there can become a hyper-specialization academically and disciplinarily. And so in the area that we are working in, in a university setting, we want to make sure that while we do recognize the 
the differences between the disciplines that we don't give in to such a specialization that we lose a sense of how it is that the disciplines are related to one another and how all of them are related to God and what he's doing in the world. And so that's another form of fragmentation that is exacerbated by the fact that we do have the ability to amass, to accumulate, and to communicate information with such such speed. And so that was another aspect that we were saying, we want to, through the podcast, do some things that will help people see how it is that these relations actually do exist. So we're not just dealing with the trees at the expense of the forest, but we're seeing that there is an underlying unity to, to life because God is the author of all of life. Yeah, you bring up the issues of sort of the what, what I think Neil Postman in the shallows and other places would would identify as the democratization of knowledge, and and the the many wonderful effects of that. But one of the downstream detriments is the the maybe not implausibility, but the the questioning of expertise. You know, when everybody's an armchair expert. Uh, there's a question of credential and and expertise that leads to that, and now it seems that everybody has the the capacity to to be an expert on everything. Yes, and so I think that those are maybe two distinct things. One is the greater difficulty seeing the connection of disciplines to one another, and then the other is this issue of the democratization of knowledge, such that um, there is kind of a disdain for anyone who would legitimately claim to have um, authority in a particular field. We, on top of this idea of, or let's say underneath this idea of defragmenting, we we came across some phrases that we decided to latch onto with the podcast, this idea of biblical integrity and thoughtful Christianity, that, that defragmenting is a podcast of Cairn University promoting biblical integrity and thoughtful Christianity. Uh, when you were mentioning this this unity in things, it, it always brings me back to Colossians one that in Christ all things hold together. Mm-hmm. There's there's this reality that what what we're hoping to do in some ways is identify these these areas where um, sin, self, the fall, a number of other other things are are pulling at what the narrative of Scripture. And the work of Christ want to bring together and to to remake what has been fractured or or to to bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the questions, or or maybe even the the statement that I'll make in the form of a question is: You notice a a big distinct difference between biblical integration from sort of an academic perspective, what you're talking about with this idea of not seeing the forest of the trees, but being able to really look at how the Bible um, really speaks to all of life and how knowledge and wisdom under the Lordship of Christ really, really seeks to integrate all of that into all of life, rather than just this hyper-specialization at the exclusion of all else. Um, What do you see as the 
difference, and this is certainly probably more a follow-up episode, but one of the things that I at least wanted to touch on because it's in the tagline, what do you think is the the distinct difference between what we want to get at in biblical integrity versus something that Karen is known for and and I think reasonably and and, uh, lauded for, this idea of biblical integration? There's this curriculum side of things that is biblical integration, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about biblical integrity. Well, both of those uh, lines in the tagline have at least a double meaning. (laughs) And when we talked about uh, promoting biblical integrity, we thought about integrity as we're most commonly familiar with it as referring to a way of life. And biblical integrity would be another way of referring to the formation of holiness and a Christ-like virtue. So we want to promote an integrity of heart through the conversations that we have and the things that we encourage people to consider. We want this to be in the service of the promotion of biblical integrity understood in terms of uh, the formation of Christ-likeness. But we also talked about how it is that we are in danger of treating the Bible itself in a very fragmentary way. And we can lose sight of the sense of the integrity of the Bible, where integrity here is referring to wholeness. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite quotations that we uh, went back and forth on is from a book called The Drama of Scripture by Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew. And I just want to read what they have to say about the importance of uh, realizing and holding forth the integrity of Scripture. They say, many of us have read the Bible as if it were merely a mosaic of little bits, theological bits, moral bits, historical critical bits, sermon bits, devotional bits. But when we read the Bible in such a fragmented way, we ignore its divine author's intention to shape our lives through its story. And they go on to say how if that's what we do with the Bible, we treat it in this very atomistic way, what we will inevitably do is seek to fit the pieces of the Bible that we're working with into whatever cultural narrative is prevalent at the time. And we end up, while we may be referring to the Bible here and there, being shaped in our thoughts, affections, desires, and so forth by an alien story. And so we want the the podcast to, in some small way perhaps, to promote that sense of the integrity of scriptures, the, the, the unity of the Bible with its showcasing of Christ and his redemptive work, and to work against the tendency that we have to slice the Bible up in such a way that we're really just dealing with proof texts that are unrelated to one another. Functionally, a, a well-intentioned endeavor turns into an inadvertent compartmentalization of scripture and its narrative and its truths applicationally and in the life of the believer, uh, both in intellect and how we actually live that out, right? So when we when we think about the other side of, of that tagline, thoughtful Christianity, um, this is something that you and I have gone over back and forth so many different times, uh, just, just this idea that um, I've, I've long lamented uh, for any number of years, and for reasons which we will not get into in this episode, um, that I often felt like a man without a theological home. Um, and and 
not simply because of political ideology or this, that, or the other, but more to do with pastoral sensibilities uh, that really drive me back to, well, well, Scripture first and foremost under the Lordship of Christ seems to reveal a humility of attitude in a number of ways that this is borne out in the life of the believer that I don't always see borne out denominationally. You know, I think of the guys over at Truth Over Tribe and, and some others that have tried to get at that sort of dissonance and tension. When we think thoughtful Christianity, what's on our mind? Again, at least a double meaning. <laughs> thoughtful Christianity, first, a, a Christian faith that takes seriously the necessity of the life of the mind in the life of discipleship, because uh, that is one of the faculties with which we are called to love God, to love God with our minds. And so um, when we said we would like the podcast to be promoting uh, thoughtful Christianity, that was one sense. We, we want to uh, be a stimulus for people to think deeply, contemplate the richness, the mystery, the complexities of the faith and how it is that they relate to life. But the other sense of thoughtful that you were bringing out is when we think of someone and we say he or she is thoughtful, we mean they're considerate, that um, they are respectful to people, that they regard people with dignity and, as you mentioned, humility. And so we want the podcast to be um, encouraging that as well, that it is a means by which, by the ways that we conduct the conversations that we have with people, and even whether there may be disagreements, mm -hmm that we are encouraging a thoughtfulness with respect to um, loving our neighbor. And so that's the other side of the coin that we were thinking about. So we look at thoughtful Christianity through the lens of charity, graciousness, humility, and disagreements and dialogue. We look at it through really deep thoughtful engagement, wise, maybe winsome engagement in the issues of the day and how Christians should be thinking Christianly about these things. And that doesn't, I mean, you know, some people hear that, particularly the word winsome. Yes. And they think, well, that means the lack of conviction. And that's not what we're talking about. Right. We're, we're committed to the idea that there can be a firmness of conviction that is wed to a, a charity and a humility and a respectfulness to, to others. And likewise, where appropriate, and this is the challenge, there needs to be the humility to say, I, I don't have firm convictions on this such that I'm going to elevate certain things to the level of orthodoxy that don't belong there. So yes, that's, that's what we are aspiring towards. So we're hoping that that the podcast in general becomes a home for those kinds of dialogues where it's it's not simply conversations with your favorite authors which who are amazing and wonderful and and really deserve a spotlight uh, for so many reasons um but but more than that it's not simply just Keith's book reviews right, right? it is a dialogue about things that really should be on the mind and on the hearts of believers because in, in engaging the, the life of the mind, it, it is in some way still immeasurably borne out in the life of the believer. It affects how we look at uh, love and connect with uh, both our brothers and sisters in Christ and 
certainly how our witness, our testimony in the world to a lost and dying world is borne out through our convictions, uh, our animosity or lack thereof, uh, and our winsomeness, again, all under the reality that it will be more and more, um, the charge will look more and more like we are conservative, obnoxious, legalistic, that or the other, uh, because holding true to scripture in 2023 is becoming an increasingly difficult position to hold. Oh, yes. How do we do that well? I know that's a big question. <laughs> um, that's a very good question. I think we do it well by, well, I'll, I'll answer in terms of the ways that I find helpful. And the ways that I find helpful in many respects comes down to I, I learned from the example of people that I think are doing it well. So I listen to people who engage people in the manner that we are describing. Mm -hmm. And I say, you know what, there's something there that I would like to emulate. There are character traits. There are ways of engaging with people that I want to imitate. I want to have internal to me. I think we do this by reading widely and talking with people from a variety of perspectives other than our own. Those are some of the ways that we, I think that we can do that. And uh, I just wanted to go back and, and say, uh, well, of course, it's not going to be just my book reviews <laughs> because uh, the podcast is more than the conversations that I have with people. You have had mm -hmm. some conversations with folks and we're going to be looping in some other people from Cairn. Yeah, certainly. I, I'm looking forward to those. I will say that uh, any book or author that I do highlight is one that I really believe is someone that people should hear from. Yes. And so the podcast is going to be a window, uh, not just into my thinking, but we're desirous that the podcast would be a window into what kind of thought is going on at Cairn. Yep. What are the, um, who are the people who are stimulating us to think? It may not necessarily be in a matter of complete agreement, but nevertheless, we're saying this is this is worthy of consideration, and we think that this is something that um, the people who are listening would do well to consider as well. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to a lot of those conversations, both internally uh, with our Cairn faculty and externally as we put panels together, and and even local pastors and some people that we we believe are doing excellent work and really thinking wisely and and well about the issues of our day. Um, certainly all of those things are going to be uh, excellent and I think compelling content. Um, and the the dialogue that exists and the camaraderie between you and often those that you're interviewing is is really well readily apparent uh, as well. So that's it's been the thing that I've appreciated uh, working with you over the years. One of the one of the things I, I wanted to come back to is this idea of biblical integration and it's sort of, the overarching narrative or the overarching nature of why it's so important. And at the end of one of the quotes, the, the Goheen and Bartholomew quote that, that you used a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned, you didn't get that far in the quote, but one of my favorite pieces of it was that scripture is no minor matter. A fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshipers. Yeah, that is a great line. 
and a, and a, an alarming line. Alarming indeed. It's, it's one of my, I struggle to say fears pastorally, but it is one of my deep concerns with uh, the, the state of, of broad evangelicalism even even as others have identified years and years ago of this this sort of trend towards moralistic therapeutic deism that when we when we take the bible snatch it from its context use it more to proof text our particular views really you're only doing more damage and creating your own little echo chamber but there's a bigger piece at play there what what happens when we fail to see the the whole of scripture, the narrative of redemption, as you will, even the, in the class that we teach, narrative of redemption, rather than this fragmented approach to the Bible. Well, what they bring out, and I think rightly so, is that if the storyline of scripture is not the the primary narrative by which you are interpreting yourself in life, you are going to be interpreting yourself in life according to some alternative narrative. It's not a matter of whether or not some narrative is at play. It's a question of which. And so when they say that um, it is possible to uh, have theologically orthodox, morally upright, morally pious idol worshipers, what they're saying is, if I am dealing with the bits of the Bible and seeking to make them fit into some broader cultural narrative that I have imbibed, perhaps unknowingly, then I'm, I'm actually worshiping something other than the, the true God. And I am operating by some other text, so to speak. And I don't mean it necessarily has to be a literal text, but a narrative, mm -hmm. some cultural story about the nature of the good life, what is wrong with life as it is, what is necessary in order for it to be rectified, who I am, what my purpose is, so forth. If I am not increasingly being formed and shaped by the biblical narrative, then I am going to be formed and shaped by something else. And therefore, it becomes vitally important that I have a sense of the unity and the progression the coherence of Scripture. And just for the sake of clarification, when we talk about the narrative of Scripture, we are not denying that Scripture is composed of a variety of genres. We're not saying that it is all narratival. But what we are saying is there is a traceable progression of God's involvement with his creation that is largely narratival in form. A lot of the work that you do uh, both here at Cairn, a lot of the ways that you think, a lot of the what drives you, even in in many ways as a theologian, is is all of those things through the lens of technology and apologetics. Could you speak to that a little bit? Because there's a, a there, if anybody that has listened or, or or read through your works, anybody that's listened to the podcast has noticed certainly a theme that that lends itself towards questions of technology and its use in the life of the believer, the dangers of digital distraction, um, any number of, of issues that you've, uh, you and I have talked over the years of even how we use technology 
in the forms of discipleship, right? In in youth ministry, I used to say for years uh, that parents are always discipling their children. They're either discipling them towards Christ or away from Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the reality is that's that's true in nearly everything. It's not simply it's something that you latch onto parents, but that there's a reality, especially uh, that the the choices that you make technologically, the choices that you make by the content that you consume, by what you allow in, by the ways that we shape our lives, and and really are shaped by the technologies uh, that we allow in. I only want to touch on it because I think it's a theme that regularly comes up on defragmenting. Even the, the name itself is kind of a, a there, there's a technological implication to it, right? Yes. I, I hope, I, I think I would, what I would want to do is I'd want to reword something you said. I hope it's not the case that I look at everything through the lens of technology and apologize. That's fair. Sorry. But that I do think much about issues of technology and and apologetics. And the reason that I think about technology is because we are awash in digital technology, particularly. Mm-hmm. And some of my own thinking about this has been uh, largely influenced by some non-Christian thinkers who I thought were rightfully putting their fingers on some areas of consideration that Christians should have been thinking about, but I didn't really hear them doing. Mm-hmm. And these are people like Sherry Turkle at MIT and Nicholas Carr, um, who wrote The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, where both of them were looking at the societal and the personal effects of particularly information technology, the impact on things like our attention, our relations, um, our sense of self. And I thought, wow, they're, they're rightly troubled by some of the things that they say. And neither of them would be, and nor am I, um, con- contrary to what some people might think, neither of them would be anti-technology, but they were saying, we need to be more discerning about the impact that our technological use is having on us, especially when it's uncritical, when we're not thinking through it. And what what interested me was, here you had two people, neither of whom are making any profession of faith, rightfully identifying something, but lacking the interpretive framework, I would say the true interpretive framework, in terms of which to make sense out of why it is that this was even troubling to them. And so that got me thinking about that. And um, when you think about what the Christian life entails, what we are called to in terms of meditation upon Scripture, spending time with the Lord in prayer, loving our neighbor, performing the one another's, um, all of those are matters of attention. And I started thinking about, well, if we are using technology in virtually the same way that our non-Christian counterparts are, there's probably a, a problem there because we should be using it with, with wisdom and with discernment. And I was very much concerned that I thought Christians for too long simply evaluated technological use on the basis of what the content being accessed by it was. So obviously, um, you know, sexually immoral material, uh, accessing that through the internet is something that a believer shouldn't do. But to go the other extreme and say, and then therefore, 
uh, you can immerse yourself in it without it having any effect on you that might be directing you in ways that are um, other than what Christ-like formation is. I thought that is too simplistic. So people like Postman and the others that I mentioned, uh, again, non-Christians, I thought that they had some valuable insights yeah, that really could serve us. And if you want to put it in the terms of plundering the Egyptians, uh, I will I will do that. Uh, I'm very encouraged to hear and read some of the Christian authors and thinkers who have been doing more on this. Uh, one that we've talked about recently, Samuel James, who, uh, you know, Lord willing, will have on the podcast. Mm-hmm. His book, Digital Liturgies, is phenomenal yeah. in terms of bringing together these areas of uh, Christian theology, Christian formation, and technology, and technological evaluation, really, really key. Yeah, I texted you the other day, it very well may be the best book I've read this decade. That's saying a lot. And and that says a lot. Um, and I'm, I don't even read as much as you do, and I read an awful lot. The, the way that I mean, I think of what you're getting at a lot uh, is is this uh, the need for analog realities in a digital world, yeah. right? In much the same way that you know Jay Kim wrote Analog Church and some of the the reality of of what we're losing when we lose this face to face reaction and reality of relationship. Yeah. Um, there's there's something lost there that we must regain as the church. Uh, Samuel James is doing much of the same work in digital liturgies that. I've been so encouraged by again, as I said, like I've I've felt like a man without a little bit of a theological home, because I feel like when I try to remain balanced on these issues and say, well, like, well, no, there's danger over here, but there's also danger in liberalism over here, but we can't be legalistic over here, and we have to be careful not to overemphasize this, but we have to be careful because the Bible doesn't proof text that for us well. That there's nobody that I agree with on anything because nobody agrees with anybody on anything at all, and not just by a lack of charity partly because some of of what these authors are really getting at is how the technology itself has shaped our own narrative. But beyond that, then how the church can and should recover these very natural, um, you know, almost almost in some ways, those of us that could could look at it and say, well, that's just boring orthodoxy. Yeah. Hey, you know what? We should fellowship with believers. We should spend regular time in prayer. We should open God's word, preferably not on our phone or our computer screen, but rather a physical, tangible, held copy of scripture where possible. And that these things with regular consumption actually have a way of pushing back against that narrative. Yes. And, and we need to do the kind of deep reflection that we were discussing earlier with respect to asking questions like, what do things like the doctrine of creation and the, the, the truth that we are embodied creatures, biblical anthropology, biblical theological yeah. anthropology, I think is one of the foremost needs of the day. In it would solve so many of the issues that Christians need to address yes. in the life of our culture. Yes. Absolutely. And it, it should play into the decisions that we make yes. about how it is that we're using technology. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would venture to, to say this, 
um, because I had to, you know, a few moments ago, I said, contrary to what people believe, uh, <laughs> I'm not anti-technology. I mean, part of the reason that I got into this is because I, I love technology in many respects. I, you know, so, but I, I was thinking, again, to quote Postman, Postman said, technology giveth, technology taketh away. And one of the things that he said is, the, the question of what a technology will allow us to do is no more important than the question of what it will undo. Yeah. And he said, and if anything, the latter question is more important because so few people ask it. And I think the reason that some people might think that I am anti-technology <laughs> is that... Which is hilarious given your obsession. Now, obsession is the wrong term. Sorry, that's pejorative. Your <laughs> substantial love of Wordle and, yes, and yes. Twitter or the X platform and any number of connections there. Yes, and my phone. And, you know, so... Um, it, it's not it, it's not an anti-technology thing, but I think what happened, and this is I think this is so with evangelicals largely. Evangelicals have tended to be such early adopters that if you ask the questions about technology, almost inevitably, you are going to be labeled as anti-technology. And I'm just saying there are questions that we should be asking, and. There is a value in asking these these questions, and it's not in asking these questions. We are not necessarily denigrating technology. No, but it, it's right to have the question uh, more deeply of form than simply content. Yes. Something that Samuel James and others get at this idea that many evangelicals will will. Adopt technology, use it well, and, and say, okay, there's positive beneficial uses. We have to be careful of the misuse of it, but really is mostly delving towards the issues of content. Yeah. Uh, okay, be careful scrolling on YouTube for too long. Be careful of, of you know, finding your identity in social media. Be careful of not going on, uh, on to, you know, inappropriate and sexually explicit sites that, that denigrate this, that, and the other. And that's the, those are all good things to say. You need to be very, very cautious of, but they're content-based, not based in form and medium. And right. you're, you're just as much wanting to ask questions about form and medium while not, not being anti-technology, but right. to say legitimately these things are forming our habits online. Yes. In the class that I teach, Technology and Christian Discipleship, we talk about technology as being a part of God's cultural mandate. I mean, uh, that we are technological creatures, that we, and you know, we talk about technology as being broader in scope than simply things that are electronic. John Dyer in the book that we use, one of the books that we use says, technology is the human activity of uh, using tools to transform God's creation for practical purposes. And, and so technology in itself, understood in that way, is not a product of the fall. So we need to understand technology with respect to creation, but we also do have to understand technology in relationship to the fall. So, um, so those are... technology rightly apprehended and technology wrongly apprehended. Yes. And, and so that's an area. The other area you mentioned is apologetics. And the reason that apologetics means so much to me is because of a profound period of doubt that I went through shortly after becoming a Christian. Um, soon after finding uh, the work of Francis Schaeffer and being immensely helped, 
spiritually and intellectually through his work. And um, because I think that we are living in a day in which, and it's not like there has not been any historic period where Christianity has not been contested. But I, I think, again, to relate it back to the issue of information inundation, we are now living in a time where we are very much in contact with competing narratives. And um, I think particularly for our young people, this is something that we have to, as a church and as families, as an institution such as Cairn, uh, we need to be helping people understand why it is that Christianity is credible, but not only intellectually, but uh, ethically, that it is good in addition to being true, and that there is a beauty in it as, as well. So uh, those two areas are areas that I give a lot of thought and attention to. Well, Keith, as we wrap up, um, you, you brought up Cairn University and, and even as an institution, the kinds of things that we're seeking to do um, in, in helping young people that are coming to us think wisely about these things, all from the biblical worldview. Um, whether it's, uh, you know, how to think about technology, um, how to think about uh, theological integration, um, both of the self, uh, of the scriptures, um, finding a way to help students latch on to the beauty of uh, the sovereignty and lordship of Christ, and yet this reality that we are called to the good of the city, the flourishing of of our culture, that that has a, a massive implication on gospel impact uh, to the lost. Um, I'm thrilled to be at, I know you are as well, an institution that, that thinks these ways, that um, helps others to attempt to think these ways, that attempts to make resources for the church um, and our students. Um, so in the future, all of these these conversations are really bent and built on that mission yeah. to provide resources for the church, for pastors, for parents, certainly for, for our own students and faculty as they think through their educational endeavors. Uh, but we hope it's bigger than that, yeah. right? We hope that um, as we're bringing these authors, these conversations to the fore, uh, that it has uh, any small measure of impact. Uh, you know, widespread impact is wonderful if if we have the ability to and should the Lord bless us to be thought leaders in these areas, wonderful. Uh, but in our own individual local church contexts, in our in your role as the dean of the Divinity School, in uh, our roles at Cairn as we seek to make much of Christ and produce men and women of character in church, society, the world, um, how, how do you feel um, we can continue that endeavor? Um, certainly in my mind, it, it focuses on the supremacy of scripture, the centrality of the gospel. Um, when you think about teaching students and sort of the next generation and the, the litany, the myriad of, of issues culturally that they're facing and what's coming, um, what's your hope? Well, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, um, you know, there was a string of things that you said there in terms of helping them to think about these things and so forth. And I 
uh, was thinking about something that I often pray before class, in class, and um, and that is that the Lord would be pleased to use our intellectual endeavors to make us better worshipers. Mm-hmm. And that is what I really hope. Uh, it's, it's my hope that we would be instrumental in stimulating, as the scriptures say, one another to love and good deeds, that paramount of which is the the worship, the adoration of God, submission to him, um, being entranced by him, and seeing the ways that we think as being subservient toward that end. Mm -hmm. And also, um, we need to be conscious of what it is that we practice uh, in terms of being consistent what it is with what what it is that we confess. And so as we were talking about the importance of embodiment mm-hmm. and presence and so forth, I would like this to be increasingly an environment where those those values are embodied, lived out, um, and that students see an alternative to the, um, again, the fragmentation of contemporary life that is beautiful, that is attractive, and that is intellectually and existentially compelling and satisfying. Well, the mission is fantastic. The, the, the endeavor is certainly worth it because Christ is worth it. I can think of no better spot to end than kind of working through our hope for those that listen and, and the goals for our students and anybody that, that this resource would touch. Thanks for your time, Keith. It's been, as always, a pleasure talking with you. Oh, it's mutual. I, I look love, forward to many others. Love the opportunity to spend time with you, Ben. Thank you. 